0: Before we begin this week's episode, we wanted to invite you to a free event at our seminary on March 18th. Every spring, DBTS hosts a theological lecture on current issues in Christianity. Speakers include recognized theologians and pastors with a commitment to the absolute authority of Scripture. This year, we are excited to welcome Dr. Joel Beakey of Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary to present a series of lectures on criticism in pastoral ministry. You can find out more and register at dbts.edu backslash rice. The day before Rice Lecture Series on March 17th, we will host a preview day for prospective students. This event will give you the opportunity to sit in on classes, meet our faculty and alumni, and get a taste of Detroit. Prospective students are encouraged to stay the night and then attend the Rice Lecture Series the next day. Meals and housing are provided. If you or someone you know is considering seminary, you can find out more at dbts.edu backslash Preview Day. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Theologically Driven, a podcast for those who want to know God through his word and have that knowledge drive their decisions. This podcast is brought to you by Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, a seminary devoted to exalting God by expounding his word. You can learn more at dbts.edu. I'm Ben Edwards, Dean of Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, and in this episode, we'll be discussing a new book, Covenantal and Dispensational Theologies. My guest this week is Dr. Mark Snowberger, Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics here at DBTS. Dr. Snowberger, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Now, for those who are uh, interested and, and wondering why we're covering this episode now, we will be continuing our series on fundamentalism and, and, and separation next week. But we wanted to take a quick break this week to highlight this new book that was just released, Covenantal and Dispensational Theology's Four Views on the Continuity of Scripture. Dr. Snowberger contributed to this excellent book, and we wanted to give him an opportunity to, to briefly discuss the book and discuss the position he argues for in the book, which is traditional dispensationalism. And you actually can have a chance to to win a copy of this book, and we'll let you know how you can do that at the end of this episode. Dr. Snowberger, why should
1: someone uh, read this book? What's the book's purpose? Okay, so the, the book was written to give the readers a summary of approaches, I think, to biblical theology and each one is written by a proponent of his respective view and that's i think the genius of the book uh, too often we learn about views other than our own from an opposing perspective which often lends to misrepresentation and so in this in this case we are all writing from our own perspective and so you get the material from the horse's mouth. So we were tasked with offering our understanding of the relationships of the covenants, uh, the Old and New Testaments, Israel and the church and and other such data within a within the biblical storyline.
0: And so that's the emphasis on continuity, what's mm-hmm. the relationship? How is is it the same or
1: what are the distinctions between these correct, things? Correct. Correct. Who were the contributors in this book? Um Uh, Mine, of course, was the traditional dispensational approach. Michael Horton, uh, professor of systematic theology at Westminster West, Westminster and Escondido, uh, represented the covenant theology view. Uh, Daryl Bach, longtime professor of New Testament at Dallas Seminary. Uh, And the advantage he brings, of course, he's he's something of the architect of his view, uh, progressive dispensationalism. Um, and then Steve Wellum was the representi- representative of progressive covenantalism. He's a professor of Christian theology at Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville. And again, something of an architect of his view as well. Uh, although I, I think I would say that his view is something of a development uh, within new covenant theology that has its roots uh, back in the 1970s in Reformed Baptist circles. So this represents something of a of a of a, a small development uh, within that view.
0: Now, why only four views? Is that Are these the only views out there?
1: Are there actually other views that could have been included in this book? Right, yeah. That's been one of the criticisms that's been leveled against the book I've seen already, is that there are really two views that perhaps could and should have been represented here. There's Reformed Baptist confessionalism, sometimes called 1689 federalism, um, which again i think uh, uh progressive covenantalism is something of a spin off uh from that view and then there's also uh theonomy, uh that uh, if we if we could say it's almost to the to the other, on the other side of of covenant theology um, and so those are two representative views that could have been included but weren't
0: yeah. now um you are the representative of traditional dispensationalism in this book what is that? What exactly is dispensationalism?
1: Okay. I would would call dispensationalism an approach to biblical theology. Some would would object to that, but I think that's what it is. And it's an approach to biblical theology that takes as its organizing motif the government of God and views the organization of the biblical storyline as a succession of administrations of the divine government.
0: And that's the dispensations that are typically described, right? Those, Correct. those different uh, organizations, administrations. How would that differ from covenant
1: theologians? Right. Covenant theology sees the covenants, or quite, quite frankly, the singular covenant of redemption as the principal organizing instrument of biblical history uh, with attendant features such as an undifferentiated people of God a, a, a more or less undifferentiated re- relationship of those people with the promises and covenants of the Bible, a shared law, and and so forth.
0: Now, if that's what dispensationalism is, what what distinguishes dispensationalism from other approaches to biblical theology?
1: Okay, so, uh, you know, 1965, go all the way back here to Charles Ryrie's book, Dispensationalism Today. Uh recently updated, more recently updated as Dispensationalism. 1965, he, he produced these three, what he called sine qua non, okay? these, these, these necessary features of dispensationalism in his classic book. And they, these are still cited today. And I think with good reason, there have been other lists. Uh, John Feinberg and Mike Locke have both developed lists of six essentials. In some ways they are more precise, uh, but Ryrie's list is still cited by most dispensationalists because it's just very concise and compact. Uh, so those three elements: firstly, uh, is a consistently literal hermeneutic. Um, I like to use the word an originalist hermeneutic. That's a, I think a more precise term that has become known in discussions of interpretation of the U.S. Constitution and other legal documents. And I think it's a very it's a more precise term than literal. Uh, There's just been a a, a litany of words that have been used over the years. uh, Normal, plain, grammatical, historical, and so forth. I think originalism sort of captures that idea. And so the idea here is that we don't need to resort to spiritual readings of the Bible, and especially of the Old Testament, such as allegory or typology or census plenier, or even complementary readings of the Old Testament promises in order to make a sense of them or to establish continuity between the two halves of the Bible. And that's because the Old Testament, like the U.S. Constitution and other documents, can be understood on its own terms, doesn't need to be updated or reinterpreted in view of other developments, later developments. So that's number one, a, an originalist hermeneutic. Second is a distinction between Israel and the church. Uh, Israel is a theocratic state that is populated almost entirely by ethnic Jews. It's an elect community of a sort, but not a redeemed community. And there's there's where we're going to see a, a distinction here that's going to come back later, I think, in our, in our podcast here. Um, they, they are a people of God, as the church is a people of God, but they are a people of a different sort. Uh, Because there is not a redeemed community. Uh, Most of them were unbelievers. What united them was ethnicity, uh, the right of circumcision, civil structures, such as a law, a king, even geographic borders. And they also had a state religion, although sometimes wasn't enforced very well, but uh, they, they had a state religion. The church, on the other hand, is a strictly religious assembly and a redeemed one, which is why Baptists, with their emphasis on regenerate church membership and credo-baptism, have tended to back away at least some degree from the most classical forms of Reformed theology. That doesn't mean that all Baptists are dispensational, but at all see at least some discontinuity between Israel and the church at some level, uh, because what unites the church is not ethnicity, but a common faith, believers' baptism, and a common mission. And uh, what's absent in the church then are unifying features of a civil variety. In fact, Baptists have traditionally had a very strong emphasis on the separation of church and state. Um, And and that idea for the Old Testament Israelite would be so much nonsense, the separation of church and state as we know it today. And all this then comes around to us and here's Ryrie's third point, which has been dismissed from many people's lists, but in some ways I think maybe the most important of, of the th- three elements that uh, Ryrie gives is that there's more going on in the biblical storyline than an outworking of a covenant of redemption. So instead of seeing biblical history principally as redemptive history or a history of the saving acts of God, Dispensationalists see biblical history as a history of the rule of God, the government of God. So it starts with a dominion mandate, with Adam as king of the earth. That's how Psalm 8 describes him. Ruling each day at the behest of God. And uh, he consulted with him daily in the in the cool of the day. And then it ends, the whole the Bible biblical storylines, with a city of God not made by hands, descending from heaven in spectacular glory onto a new earth in which there's neither sin nor any need for redemption, and it will continue forever in that state. And so the entry of sin and shame and uh, the theme of redemption add incredible color and intrigue to the biblical storyline. Surely we don't want to minimize those things, but I think we make a mistake if we make that the unifying center of all that God is doing. I I think redemption ends up just being a little bit too narrow and creature-centric to serve as the center of all that God's doing. Now, now Ryrie, I believe,
0: refers to that as the glory of God yeah. being the goal. And, and that's, many people say, well, all of us believe the glory right. of God's the goal, but we're saying specifically the glory of God in his rule right. over the created order, not necessarily just the glory of God in his saving of
1: yes. people. Yeah, that was ex- that, he explains that in his book. Uh, I think it's been unfortunate that that's sort of been reduced to a doxological center, I, I think that reduces what Ryrie says a little bit too much. What he's saying is there is, do- and everybody, everybody who's a Christian, I think, has to say that doxology, the glory of God, is the center. But the question is not whether doxology is the center, but how is it that God receives glory? There tends to be in Reformed life an emphasis on redemption as the primary means whereby God receives glory, where uh, Ryrie sees Many more means of glory uh, being brought to God and specifically the government of God. Now, you mentioned Ryrie wrote his book in
0: 1965. Mm -hmm. Um, Dispensationalism as a system was not developed, you know, 2000 years ago. Right. Uh how did it develop? When did it develop? Were people often people say dispensationalists read the newspaper back into the Bible? Is that how dispensationalism <laughs> developed? Was it instead, you no, know, they actually started reading the Bible the right way? Uh
1: how how did it develop? When did it develop? Yeah, I'd like to think it's because they started reading their Bibles better. But but there is a sense in which historical factors, Zeitgeist uh produced dispensationalism. Yeah, you know, perhaps I could say that um social and civil factors forced people back into their Bibles to look for solutions to the problems of the day that weren't being supplied by the organized churches of that day. And so so it led, I think, to a reassessment of the the tidy continuities that had marked federal theology, which dominated really from the beginning of the 17th to the beginning of the 19th century. So really 200 years of Protestant history are dominated uh, by federal theology. Now, Some people
0: might think, well, that would be a mark against this sensationalism that, you know, developed a few hundred years ago. Uh, But really covenant theology and and Protestant theology, you could argue, as well developed as people were forced to go back to Scripture and to reform and reassess what it was that they taught. And so that isn't necessarily a flaw in the system. That's just, unfortunately, how often our understanding, our theology develops, that we sometimes need to correct and, and rethink these things.
1: Yes, in some ways, it's I can breathe a sigh of relief because uh, dispensationalism is traditional dispensationalism is no longer the new kid on the block. Yeah. Uh, we've actually got these internal the, these interior positions of progressive covenantalism and progressive dispensationalism that in some ways are newer, at least in their. Yeah. So you had the second oldest view in this book. <laughs> <right>? It's
0: nice. <laughs> now you mentioned one of the the purposes of the book. Was to discuss how the the covenants are viewed within these different systems, and so how do the covenants fit into dispensational theology? We just dispensationally
1: say there aren't no there are no covenants, or what do they think of the covenants? Right, covenants are no more the exclusive property of covenant theologians than dispensations are the exclusive property of dispensations. Uh, They're there. The question is, what role do they play? With many dispensationalists, I would argue that the first formal covenant in the Bible, that is the only, the the first one with sufficient features to say, yes, that's a covenant, is the Noahic covenant. Uh, And that's not, of course, to say that there are not arrangements that are made earlier. Uh, There obviously is some sort of plan that God puts in place at the beginning of time. Uh, So it's not to say that there was no organization prior to this time, but the first formal covenant that can be identified as such is the Noahic covenant. And And it's a civil covenant. It speaks to the issue of redemption really only in the most oblique of senses, I believe. It establishes God's civil expectations for the whole world in the wake of the flood, not just for the redeemed, but for the whole world. In fact, that's a theme that just re- is relentless in, in, uh, in Genesis 8 and 9. Much of the dominion mandate is repeated in that. Uh, and this covenant, I think, still stands today as God's expectation for establishing order and receiving glory in the secular realm. So that's the first covenant. All of the other covenants are given strictly to Israel. I think Paul says this much, right? To them, to the Israelites, belong the covenants, the law, the temple, and the promises. So so in other words, he's saying that they are a feature primarily of the Israelite administrations and are insufficient, in my mind, for carrying the weight of the whole biblical storyline. It's true, of course, that people who are outside the governance of those covenants, whether in terms of time or ethnicity, could benefit from those blessings, uh, the blessing clauses of the covenants, and they could suffer under the covenant curses, but the primary recipients of all those covenants are uniquely ethnic and theocratic unit of God's administrative program called Israel. Now, dispensationalists do differ on how substantially believers today can benefit from these covenants, especially the new covenant, but all dispensationalists agree that nobody gets anything if Israel doesn't get everything promised to her within those those covenants. So that's that's where the dispensational model, I think, peels away uh, from the the two covenantal models that are represented in the book. Hmm.
0: Now, now, a common criticism of dispensationalism is that uh, dispensationalism teaches
1: two ways of salvation. Is that true? No, no, it, no. It's not true. Now. There is a sense in which you can look at the history of dispensationalism, and there have been some avant-garde and careless statements made, uh, one, of course, famously by C. I. Schofield uh, in his study Bible. And it seems like for the last hundred and fifteen years, dispensationalists have been trying to to distance themselves from that statement. Uh, but the, but the but the criticism keeps coming back. now there, there's some reasons for that. Um, not not only are there some careless dispensationalists, uh, along the way, uh, but I think one of the one of the issues is that if your if your grid is a covenant of dispensation, uh, a, a, a a series of covenants of redemptive import, if you hear seven dispensations, you think seven ways of salvation, and I think that's one of the things that's just been very difficult uh, to to communicate that we're we're talking apples and oranges. We're talking about seven administrative uh, expressions of the divine government, not seven ways of redemption. Hmm. Now, uh, you mentioned
0: that many people think dispensationalism believe in two ways of salvation. Uh, it seems, by and large, a lot of people have false views of what dispensationalism teaches what dispensationalists hold to why do you think there is such a poor understanding of dispensationalism within uh, at least within certainly the the more young restless reformed movement yeah. that kind of uh, realm and that's a good
1: question and it, it the incubation of dispensationalism during the last half of the 19th century was at a in a, at a troubled juncture in the church this is a an anti-confessionalist, Period. Uh, the uh, d- the fundamentalists are abandoning the denominations, and in doing so, they became somewhat vulnerable, I think, to error. And there are some errors that grew up together with dispensationalism. Uh, so, for instance, Arminianism was was a a, a feature. Keswick theology uh, was a feature of the theology. Uh, that was often held in conjunction with dispensationalism, but but I don't think it was as some sort of a necessary uh, element of dispensationalism. They just happened to grow up together. Um, and, and also, I think there's there's some who have uh, within the dispensational community that have abandoned uh, federal headship um, or what what you know my professor back in in seminary called representative headship. He didn't want to use. The term federal, because uh, yeah, that that implies the the fetus or the the covenant, but he did recognize that Adam was designated by God to be the federal head, the representative head of the human race, and that Jesus, the second Adam, was the representative of those he of 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 the elect as well, and so you you. Uh, while it, is, while it is true that there are some dispensationalists that have backed away, incidentally, uh, from, from, uh, from, from key positions held by Reformed theology, Reformed soteriology, I don't think that's necessary to the dispensational system. Would you say that dispensationalism has a unique view of soteriology? No. No, that, that, Yeah, I, I don't think that really plays, plays a role. Uh, dispensationalism has a distinct view of the church— distinct view of Israel, and incidentally, a a distinct view of eschatology. Uh, It touches the rest of the doctrines only incidentally. So you can
0: be a Calvinist and a dispensationalist. Is that possible? I hope so. (laughs) Now, you mentioned it touches eschatology kind of incidentally. I mean, we haven't brought any charts up yet. We haven't been talking about the end times can we really be discussing dispensationalism
1: and not bring those things up? Why didn't we begin there? Yeah. In fact, I, I, would meant to earlier talk about, you know, some of the earliest days of dispensationalism. Uh, of course, John Nelson Darby is often tagged as the, uh, organizer, the, the systematizer of dispensationalism. And, uh, It's often taught or or supposed that he just had this interaction with some weirdos, some fringe elements within the the, uh, church, and he ran with those ideas. But that's really not where dispensationalism came from. Um, Darby was a rector of the Anglican Church. There's all kinds of offices in the Anglican Church. But uh, but in, in that day, as a rector, he was he was charged with the rectitude of of people so uh, in many ways you could call him an evangelist of sorts a missionary perhaps um, and he was he was tasked with with uh, with evangelizing among the uh, the Irish miners and apparently he was quite good at it um, and uh, over time there were about 600 converts uh, that were directly attacked you know, attached to his his ministry of evangelism there. And he approached the Anglican Church proposing that these be brought into the Anglican Communion. And the answer was, sure, absolutely, so long as they swear allegiance to the King of England, Queen of England, right? The monarch. (laughs) And of course these are Irish you know these are Irish miners and so so getting them to swear allegiance to to England was was something of a difficulty and and Darby was like it shouldn't have to be this way and this is where he starts to recognize that okay in Israel it was that way you had to swear allegiance to the king of Israel but in the present day, it's a different administration. We render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. We render to God the things that are God. and we should not have to make the decision in order to be part of this religious assembly. I have to swear allegiance to a king or a queen. okay. And so he he withdraws from the Anglican Church, practically speaking, and 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 starts his own organization, which eventually becomes known as the, brethren or the Plymouth brethren, because that's where the sort of the hub uh, uh, came to be. And so and so, what started here is an ecclesiological movement. There really wasn't any view to eschatology at this point. Okay, Now, what ends up happening is curiosity begins to rise. Okay, so if Israel and the church are different from one another, how do they come together at the end? And so there was a lot of speculation about eschatology, and then a lot of grunt work uh, that went into eschatology, and it, it proved to be something that was really interesting. And so uh, dispensationalism became noted for its emphasis on eschatology, but quite frankly, I would say that's incidental to the system. Okay, in fact, I, I, I've taught I've taught dispensationalism at Detroit for. 15 years. I have a section at the end on eschatology, but I've never gotten to it because I I just don't think it's really an essential part of the dispensational uh, system. They, they do have a distinct eschatology, but I don't think it's essential to the dispensational system. It's not what's driving the system, no, it's the it's outworking not. Yes, of the system. Correct. So I would encourage you if, if you. Uh,
0: have enjoyed this discussion to, to potentially take up this book and look through it as Dr. Snowberger mentioned, really I think one of the great benefits of a book like this is being able to actually see these different positions laid out by proponents of these positions. And, um, I think in particular, traditional dispensationalism is often, uh, misportrayed. And so I hope that this would be a great opportunity for you to, to see, uh, a, a solid and, uh, helpful, uh, laying out of what traditional dispensationalism thinks and teaches, as well as potentially these other views in the book as well. Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode and are interested in picking up this book, uh, we actually are going to be giving away five copies of the book. You can earn a chance to win a copy by following us on uh, Twitter, on following the the seminary, the Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary account on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Uh, you can earn additional entries by sharing the posts we're going to put up. Uh, for this episode uh, on Twitter or Facebook. And you can find out more about our podcast or Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary at dbts.edu. We look forward to our next time together. Until then, keep seeking the Lord.